So today's sermon builds a little bit on last week's, where I talked about the need or the benefit of us picking a worldview, a religion, a philosophy that guides our life. So this is sort of the follow-up sermon about how to make it stick. So if you missed last week, that's okay. This is a standalone sermon, but we managed to record last week, so you can listen if you want. It's on our pod- podcast. Wherever podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find it there. So a couple of days ago, Arthur Brooks, who I'm sure some of you read, is an author and a professor and the host of a popular podcast that he entitled How to Build a Happy Life. He published a piece called Aristotle's 10 Rules for a Good Life. It's basically Brooks's take on the ancient Greek philosopher's recipe for happiness. So Brooks, what he does is he recommends that we take this list to our refrigerator or maybe to the corner of your computer screen so that you will have a daily checklist to ensure that you are living well. The list is short, and so I'm going to give you this list in full to make sure all of you live a happy life. One, name your fears and face them. Two, know your appetites and control them. Three, be neither a cheapskate nor a spendthrift. Four, give generously, as generously as you can. Five, focus more on the transcendent and disregard the trivial. Six, true strength is a controlled temper. Seven, never lie, especially to yourself. Eight, stop struggling for your fair share. Nine, forgive others and forbear their weaknesses. And finally, define your morality. Live up to it, even in private. That's it. That's your recipe for a happy life. Now, I think that this list is great. I haven't printed it yet, but maybe I will and put it on my refrigerator door. I think that a list like this is really perfect for disciplined and emotionally regulated people like all of you are. I'm sure many of you here already follow this Greek recipe for happiness. I'm sure almost everybody here, you always follow the healthy eater pyramid for all of your meals. I'm sure all of you stretch before and after your exercise like your doctor tells you to. I'm sure that none of you here have ever fantasized about throwing water balloons in the faces of people who hold up the checkout line digging for coupons. I'm sure none of those things are any of you. But for those of you who, like me, who don't have your life figured out, rather than taping this list to your fridge, just do what I do and just bring a preteen with you everywhere you go. (laughs) In case any of you have forgotten what preteens are like, they are experts. They are experts at reminding you of your weaknesses and mistakes. And they often remind you of your weaknesses and your mistakes in embarrassing ways, in embarrassing times, and at embarrassing places. Now, I'm not saying that preteen call-outs will guarantee that you end up a well-balanced person, but they will absolutely guarantee that you do not forget all the ways you are not a well-balanced person. So over dinner on Friday night, my preteen daughter, she offered a 15-minute speech that detailed all of my recent missteps. I said, Ellie, let's talk about your mom. 
which is, is not a good idea if you want a bit of free relationship advice. And it didn't work anyways, because my daughter was sort of steamrolling. She reminded everyone that when something around the house breaks, I go into what she calls grumpy fix-it mode. I sort of disrupt the chill vibe of the house as I'm trying to fix at this moment my washing machine or whatever comes next. And so I tried to dodge this. I said, you know, Ellie, it's really not uncommon for people to get just a little bit grumpy when something breaks. My daughter immediately came back and she said, well, you're a minister. You should know better. <laughs> and she's right. I actually do know better. But knowing and doing are two different things. A fact that Brooks's 10 rules for a good life, it just doesn't spend a whole lot of time on. So Brooks's list is simple. If you create the conditions for happiness, more happiness is likely to come, which means you won't have as many jerky moments when stuff breaks around the house. The recipe's simple. Be courageous, generous, pleasant, and forgiving, and slowly but surely, you will transform into the balanced human Aristotle writes about. But the truth is that these ideas are not simple. They were never meant to even seem so. It's important to remember that when we're talking about ethics, remember to put this ethical hat on whenever you think about ethics. Whenever we're talking about them, the question is never what we do. The question when you're talking about ethics is always who we are, which is sort of this moment's question, this era's question. So the internet, if you didn't know this by now, it is filled with moralists and it is filled with moralizers, which is a very politically correct way of saying that humankind is not short on people who like telling you that you are wrong or you are dumb or both. So several years ago, my brother-in-law, he turned me on to what I think is the best social media on the internet. For those of you who haven't heard of it, it's called Reddit. Any of you know Reddit? If you don't know, I'll tell you what it is. It's basically an endless conversation amongst people from around the world who talk about everything from the internet's cutest cat videos to advice on how to live an ethical life. And so 10 years ago this summer, they're celebrating their 10th anniversary, a subreddit, a category of conversation was created and it's called, I doctored it up, so it's rated PG-13, but this category is called Am I the blank hole? Okay, but it's often abbreviated A-I-T-A. -A. Am I the, you know what it says. So what people do is they go there to talk about conflicts they've had so that online strangers can render judgment. And so what you'll see is usually one of two things. You'll either see people get rated Y-T-A, you are the mm-mm, or, NTA, you're not the, mm -mm. okay. So Reddit, if you didn't know, it's controlled by real life people, they're moderators who ensure that the rules are always being followed. But in the case of this particular subreddit, in the case of AITA, this is the main rule. Accept your judgment. So I want you to get a sense of how people use this subreddit and so while I was writing this summer, I may, or writing the sermon yesterday, I might have wasted a little bit of time in this subreddit reading it. But these were what people were voting on yesterday. Are you ready for the questions? I've only got three here. AITA, 
for not attending my brother's wedding and not apologizing. A-I-T-A, my husband has changed all of the baby's diapers for the last 1.5 years. Finally, A-I-T-A for rebooking a flight just to avoid babysitting my niece. You can weigh in too if you go on Reddit and you can render your judgment. So there's this Cambridge University philosopher, his name is Nikhil Krishnan, and he points out in a recent piece that he wrote that AITA is actually a very Aristotelian place on the internet. What's striking about AITA is the language in which it states its central question. You're asked not whether I did the right thing, but rather what sort of person I'm being. Now I've got a few things to say about this. First, I think that this area is an area that the church can help with. As the famous saying goes, the church is not a museum of saints. The church is a hospital for sinners. In a recent interview with Pope Francis, he said this exact same thing. I'm going to quote him. He says, the thing the church needs most today is the ability to heal wounds and warm hearts. In other words, the hurting world needs a place to bring spiritual and emotional injuries. So the church, and I'm including us in this, has sort of specialized in fault-finding for way too long. It's specialized in for too long because if you haven't learned by now, people are hungry to be in relationships. And relationships take a lot of time. People are hungry for relationships because everyone struggles with being a jerk. Everyone struggles about trying to figure out how to live a happy life, at least some of the times. And many of us struggle with those things all the time. Because if it was as easy as taping a list to your fridge, my guess is that we would have achieved peak happiness a long time ago. As Christian notes, we have long lived in a world desperate for formulas, simple answers to the simple question, what should I do? And he ends the essay by noting how things like 10-step rules for happiness, corporate sensitivity training, life coaching, are all an attempt at solving a problem everyone has. The problem of avoiding the things we know we need to change. Life would be a lot easier, he says, if there were rules, algorithms, and life hacks solving that problem once and for all. But there aren't. At the heart of Aristotle's ethics is a claim that remains both edifying and chastening. Good judgment just doesn't come that easy. Aristotle devised a theory that was vague in all the right places, one that left space to be filled by life. This last point does us all a favor in that it bursts pop psychology's bubble. Now, pop psychology isn't all bad. It's just that it seems to make short of life's problems, which avoids the reality that living a non-jerky, mostly happy, mostly balanced life is not easy all the time. There's this wonderful moment in St. Paul's letter to the Romans about that enduring conflict that rages in all of us. And so Paul writes to his friends in Rome and he makes something of a confession. He says, I don't understand my own actions for I don't do what I want, but I keep doing the very thing I hate. 
I just finished a book that has a scene in it that illustrates this lesson well. So in, a book, in the book, there is a professor who shares a story about an incredibly bright young student who he advises that comes to him to process her debilitating need for external validation. She tells him that this started whenever she was just a girl. From a very young age, she had always been the star student. Top scores on exams, glowing comments on essays, praise from friends and mentors. All of this resulted in admission to one of this nation's top universities. But then it happened. Early in her sophomore year, she got a bad mark on an essay, and it shattered her. She told her advisor that she was starting to question her obsession with meeting everyone else's expectations, and in fact, it was starting to tear her up inside. What she said is she said, I don't want to go through life desperate for good grades. I don't want to always be desperate to look good in someone else's eyes. She wanted to love herself, good grades or bad. She wanted to feel like she was worth something no matter what. She wanted to be wanted on her own terms. And eventually, she talked to her friends and her family about this, and slowly the cracks started to break and she started opening up and showing herself a part of herself that she had hidden for years and years to her friends and family. And everything was going pretty well until a few weeks, weeks later when she got another undesirable grade. She got this bad grade and she found herself walking across campus and crying over yet another bad grade. The same sort of thing that she thought she didn't or shouldn't care about that much anymore. She knew in her mind that a grade was not the measure of her life, but she couldn't help feeling shame and disappointment. But it was even worse. In addition to the shame and disappointment that comes with feeling attached to external validation, she now felt shame and disappointment in herself for having those feelings at all. So the student returned to her advisor and she said, when does this ever change? Why is it like this? I came in ashamed and disappointed whenever I was less than perfect. And now I'm ashamed and disappointed for being so ashamed and disappointed when I know better. Before I would have just been crushed about the paper, but now I'm crushed about being crushed about the paper. It's like a double disappointment. How is this a step toward a happy life? I thought that's what college was supposed to be about. If you listen carefully, the student found herself in the same shoes as St. Paul. She found herself in the same shoes as those thousands of people who take their disappointment to the AITA subreddit. Her judgment had indeed changed, but her desires and her habits, they were still the same. What's more, the world around her was just as it had been before. All those old pressures were still there. Pressure from professors, from family, from society, from her peers. I think all of us have longed for change at some point. And some of us have seen that even when we do change, in the long run, we really don't end up all that different than before we made the change. The very best part of Brooks's 10 Rules for a Good Life is an eight-word sentence at the very end. And here's what it says. 
None of these rules is easy to follow. It's not easy because reading or hearing something is not the same as getting it. And having the insight is little to guarantee that you'll hold on to it all the time. Old habits, bad thought patterns, grumpy responses, they tend to pop back up even when we think we've cut them down. And this is where practice comes in. This is where the introduction of church comes in. Because the heart of ritual, of prayer, of meditation is a disciplined attentiveness to the world and our perception of it. And so on this topic, the Dalai Lama says, and I'm going to quote him, quote, all counterproductive emotions are based on and depend upon ignorance of the true nature of persons and things. If we undermine the ignorance of ourselves and others, all destructive emotions are undermined, end quote. So I'm going to break down what I think he's saying. One of Buddhism's insight is its awareness that all of us struggle with thinking we are the center of our own little universe. And this insight is offered as an invitation for us to see this as the illusion it is. It's an illusion because there'd be no you without family and friends and teachers and quick trip employees and sanitation workers. All of them, just like all of us, they struggle with painful emotions. They struggle with hurtful behaviors. They get grumpy whenever the washing machine breaks. And everyone struggles to come to terms with heartbreak and tragedy. When we accept this and when we meditate on it, it gets us closer to the compassion for ourselves, compassion for missing the mark, compassion for those we love, towards those for whom we've been indifferent, and sometimes even for our enemies. One of my mentors in ministry, he often says to me, he says, Brian, I don't think you should pray because it's going to change the world. Brian, I think you should keep praying and hope that one day you'll change. The point of adopting a practice like prayer or meditation is that it helps train our attention to the guiding voice within us towards the way of life we're seeking to keep going. And the point of finding a church or an AA meeting or a brotherhood or a sisterhood is to be reminded that you are not alone in wanting to be happier and nicer and more generous. This community, this church is here even when you're not. It's here for you whether the change you're after sticks or not. There's no denying that we as human beings can fail. But I don't think any of you here are at risk of that. Because if Aristotle's right, if we end up succeeding at all, it's unlikely that we'll have succeeded on our own. The search for happiness might start in you. But in the long run, the best of it is found in all of us. Amen.